You Can Mentor is a podcast about the power of building relationships with kids from hard places in the name of Jesus. Every episode will help you overcome common mentoring obstacles and give you the confidence you need to invest in the lives of others. You Can Mentor. Hey, how's everyone doing today? Zach Garza here with the You Can Mentor podcast. That was pretty good, huh? That was great. Here with my second best friend, <laughs> Stephen Murray. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to Kyle Blair, the blur. Oh, if you're listening man. to this. Kyle, I hate you. I'm just kidding. Um, let's see. My best friends, Justice Marimi is up there. Kyle okay, Blair. Okay, you don't have to rub it in. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> just wanted to. Kyle is a is a listener, and I want to give him a shout out because I appreciate him. Means a lot, Blur. Thanks, buddy. I guess most people hate their bosses, so <laughs> this is the, the the one boss. I don't I don't know what you call me. Employee relationship where the employee thinks his boss is his best friend. <laughs> that might be a symptom of the father wound. <laughs> <laughs> I need you. Uh, all right. Enough with the joking. Let's talk about the main questions that stem from the father wound. Murdog, help us out here, bud. Yeah, this is good. Hopefully this episode is a little uh, less drink from the fire hydrant. If you checked out last week's episode, we talked about a ton of stuff with the orphan spirit versus the the spirit of sonship. If you didn't check out the resources, I want to highly encourage you to go to our website and download that mug so you can really read through and process the symptoms and signs of, of an orphan spirit. This episode, we're going to just go through a few questions that stem from the father wound. So it'll be a little more easy to track with. Um, the first question we're going to talk about is, do I have what it takes to be a man? Yeah. And that, that right there is a question that so many young men ask themselves, um, starting from a pretty early age, because Manhood is something that is passed on from an older man to a young man. It isn't like you can go to the store and be like, I'd like some Cheetos, maybe some uh, Dr. Pepper and some manhood, please. Uh, instead, <laughs> like manhood is an initiation. There's a saying that I'll get to here in a second that proves that, but it is bestowed. And, and the only way to really pass on manhood is through relationship, whether it's it's a father or a father figure who says kind of one or more of the following phrases, you're mine. When you say you are mine in some way, it obviously doesn't have to be that straightforward, but this makes a child feel protected and covered. You have what it takes. This inserts courage into the heart of a child. You belong here. This makes a child feel like they have something to offer and that they have um, worth that someone kind of wants them to be a part of their tribe or their family. I believe in you. Like this is wind in the sail of a child. It gives them confidence. They don't have to worry. Do I have enough? Am I enough? Can I do this? Because someone's telling them, no, like you do have what it takes. I do believe in you. I am here for you. A kid knows that if he fails, it's okay. Like it's not the end of the world. Just because they fail doesn't mean that they're a failure. Like love is still going to be provided. They have someone to run to and, if they fall down, they've got someone who can help them back up. And like, it's totally okay. Mentors, if you're hearing this to be like this upfront and blunt saying these things, look, your the kid who you're mentoring in the eyes and say, Hey man, I just want you to know that you really do have what it takes to be a good man. Yeah. That's really good. And that like you're mine. And 
I'm not mentoring you because I have to. I'm mentoring you because you're worth it and because I love you. And like, yeah, that's super intimate. I understand that. But those are the words that our kids need to hear. Hey, man, I just want you to know that I'm bringing you into my life because you have so much to offer and you belong here. I believe in you, man. Like, I believe you can become fill in the blank. I believe you can graduate high school. I believe you can overcome this obstacle. I believe you can become a good husband and father and you can become what you didn't have. Even for children who come from ideal homes, like becoming an adult is hard. Like it's a major area of transition and any transition is hard. But the power of your words can really encourage and really inspire any child, but specifically a kid from a hard place. That's really good, Zach. I think it is, it's more than just actions that show these things. We literally have to say it yeah, and make sure it's clear. And I, I think for most mentors, they expect, you know, your mentee to be like, well, my dream is to be in the NBA or get drafted or, or something. And in a way, <clears throat> there's a feeling as a mentor that I need to adjust my mentee's expectations for his future. And, well, you know, like statistically speaking, there's not much opportunity for you in the, in the league. Um, and given your potential, I don't, I don't know if that's possible. Rather than have that conversation, we have this conversation. I love you. I care for you. I believe in you. You have what it takes. And, and as a mentor, our focus is not just necessarily speaking into a future role or dream, but actually these underlying questions that they're asking about, do I have what it takes to be a man? I've never heard a mentee say that. Right. But they all feel it. And those are the questions we're addressing are the questions that they feel inside, not necessarily the ones that they're asking. Well, and what's so crazy about this is this isn't just the kid from a hard place. <laughs> like I have so many friends, Stephen, you might actually be able to speak into this. I have so many friends who are like, man, the only thing I want is for my dad to say that he's proud of me. I just want my dad to say like four words, like, I love you, son. I love you for you, not for what you do. And it's this, huge. And this goes back to Relationships Change Life series, the three A's. Whenever those words aren't spoken, people are left to question. That gives the enemy like a foothold to insecurity. I don't know if I have the tools or the strength to make this journey alone. And so like this isn't just from kids from hard places, although it it for sure is. It's kind of for everyone, mm -hmm. um, which brings us back to just the importance of a father. I like what you said, that manhood isn't something you can pick up from the grocery store. A lot of the times it's just assumed that we're men and that that hasn't been imparted to us in some way and that we've received our own conception of what manhood is from the men that are around us and that it is a process of coming into manhood that I think for a lot of people, they never had an entry point where someone was like, okay, you're no longer a boy. Now you're a man. I think that transition, like that's a, that's a very important aspect of our development is coming into manhood. And I think a lot of, a lot of us struggle to identify where was our entry point into this, where, where, when did we become a man and do we have what it takes? And like that, that really is important because society will lie to you and say, you're a man if right? You're a man if you do these things. If a man doesn't come and say, hey, this is who you are, this is your identity, 
the enemy's just going to get all over that. And he's going to make you think like, hey, what happens if, if you fail? What happens if you, you don't have what it takes to be a man? People won't love you. They'll make fun of you. You can't do it. You're not smart enough. You're, you're not good enough. You're not this enough. You're going to be alone for the rest of your life because what girl's going to want to get, right? And mm-hmm. just like all these lies come. A mentor, a father bestows identity. Like he says, you're mine. He says whose you are, you're mine, you're God's, and who you are. But the enemy wants to tell them that their identity is worthless. You have nothing to offer. No one's going to be there for you. That's why it's so important for a man to speak into a young man's life, to speak into a child's life. There's a saying that I really like, and it's kind of confusing, but I think that you guys will be able to pick it up, and it's this. A man doesn't believe he's a man until a man he believes is a man tells him he's a man. A boy doesn't believe that he's turning into a man until someone who he sees as a man and someone who he respects and someone who he trusts puts his finger in his chest and says, hey, dude, you're a man. And in the same way, when talking about girls, when talking about females, right, it's a woman doesn't believe she's a woman. Now catch this, until a man she believes is a man tells her she's a woman. Wow. At first, I was like, eh, I don't know if that's true. But talking to some of our staff who have seen this, she'll say, no, that's, that's dead on. Because fathers give identity. Oh. And so just this, do I have what it takes to be a man? I believe that a father needs to answer that question. And more than that, once he answers it, he can point them to the heavenly father, right? I don't know how many people you were friends with or in relationship with in high school that had really a really bad experience with their dads. And it was like the mantra that they would recite is like, well, I'm never going to be like him or I'm going to be such a better dad than my dad ever was for me. And every time I heard that from people, I always thought about, well, who's, who's going to show you how to do that if you didn't have an example? Cause it's one thing to desire to be better than our dad was. And I feel like everyone would probably say that even if you had a good dad, you still want to be a better dad than them. But I I think that leads us into our next question is like, who's going to help me and show me how to be a man, how to be a father. I think that's a question that, that every, every boy asks himself when it comes to the father wound, who's going to show me how to be a man. Yeah. And every kid is going to learn how to carry themselves from someone like from somewhere, like we learn how to survive, how to advance, how to, how to carry ourselves by watching other people. Like more is caught than taught. I learned how to be a man from two things, the TV screen and the CD player. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm going to be honest. And I know that this sounds funny, but it's so true. Like I was obsessed with rap music whenever I was in junior high in high school. Like I played basketball and like as a basketball player, like you did two things. Like you smoked weed and you listened to rap music. And like, I loved my main man, Tupac Shakur, like listening to Tupac. If you guys don't know who he is, then just hop on Google. But Tupac is, he is, I watched a documentary about Tupac and Biggie, man, like Tupac Shakur is just everything that he is stems from growing up without a father. Like if you listen to the song, Dear Mama, he talks about 
Like I joined gangs because all I wanted was love. And these were the people who were giving me love because I didn't have a dad. Like he says that in his lyrics. But all along I was looking for a father, he was gone. I hung around with the thugs, and even though they sold drugs, they showed a young brother love. I moved out, started really hanging. He was talking about these things that no one else was talking about, right? So many of his songs, like So Many Tears or Keep Your Head Up or Dear Mama, like all of these songs. And guys, I know it sounds funny, but like they taught me things. Like they taught me that I had to put on my best self, that I couldn't trust anyone, that like appearance is everything, look good, act tough, like you're on your own. Like this world is a bad place and you need to do what you got to do to survive. There are lyrics in his songs that, actually say like this world is a war zone right and like these are the things that like i would fall asleep listening to mm. i mean for like years almost a decade tupac shaped a lot of what i thought a man was like you had to get money you had to look good you had to get tough you had to get girls like you couldn't let anyone think that you were weak because if they thought that you were weak and then they take you out but the next thing is the tv screen right it's like I loved movies like Pulp Fiction or Goodwill Hunting or Fight Club. And like Pulp Fiction, it showed me that like drugs and crime, like not, not that big a deal. Goodwill Hunting instilled in me that like friends are my family, that mm. like they're the only ones that I can really trust. And like Fight Club, like, well, you guys can guess what Fight Club taught me, but it's, it isn't like I'm this like super tough guy, but like, I remember like, I was so filled with anger that like the best way to get that out was just to get in fights. I don't think it's too much to say that I honestly can look back and say, I learned a lot about being a man by listening to music and watching movies because there was literally no man in my life who was talking about the things that Tupac was talking about. Like there was no one in my life who was showing me how to have healthy relationships with my friends or with girls or with like drugs. Like, yes, I saw the don't do drugs, but there was no adult in my life. There's no man in my life saying, Hey, let's talk about this. Tupac and watching these movies were the only ones who were talking about it. The only men in my life were guys at church. And if I'm being honest, I didn't want to be like them. <laughs> like they didn't give me something to aspire to society and culture taught me how to be a man. Musicians and actors were honestly the only ones there to help me. Because only a man can teach a boy how to become a man, right? There is this saying, right, that says, tell me, I'll forget, show me, I'll remember, involve me, and I'll understand. And there was no one there to involve me. I would say, like, the example of, of an actor or a movie or a, an artist, the example they're putting forward is, I don't want to say provocative, but I do want to say that it's, it's loud. And so you're getting an example, and you're seeing someone live a life. And so in a way they are answering the question, who's going to show me how to be a man since I'm seeing their life or their art or this movie, you are getting the, the question you're asking in the inside, you're getting an answer and it's, it's better than any other answer you're receiving. And it's speaking to issues that you're, you're feeling on the inside. So, well, it's the only answer that I'm getting. Yeah. Right. And I know it sounds dumb, that like you might be hearing this and be like, this guy learned how to be a man by listening to Tupac. <laughs> like, yes, that sounds absurd. Yes, that is absurd. It's also the truth. Like there are so many kids who we mentor, kids from hard places, who they don't have one positive male in their life. 
They don't have any male in their life. And so the only males that they know are LeBron James or Kanye or right. Like those are literally the only men in their lives. And so it only makes sense that they would look to them and be like, well, they're my only examples. I'm going to follow them. Manhood is bestowed. Like only a man can teach a boy how to become a man. We need someone who's been there before, someone who can show us the ropes. We need someone to say, hey, don't step here. It's bad news. Instead, go there. Go here. That's how you succeed. We need a guide. We, we need someone to give us a map. We need an actual person to sit there and pick us up whenever we fall down. We don't need someone barking orders. I don't need someone who's setting the bar too high and who's setting un, unachievable results. I don't need someone who's going to sit me down and say, okay, here's how you become a man. Step one, don't look at pornography. Step two, mow the yard, go to college, right? Like we don't need that. Like, yes, there's wisdom in those things, but that's not what we need. We need a relationship because relationships change lives. We need a man in our life. We don't need a man on the sidelines. We need someone who's engaged and who challenges us. Someone who gives us their attention. If all I needed was instructions, I'd have a bunch of books and hop on YouTube, but that's not what we need. We need a father, someone to initiate us, someone to look him in the eyes and say, good job. You have what it takes. I'm proud of you. And if you fall down, don't worry about it because I'm here for you. We need someone to push them and someone who's going to support them, right? I was initiated in, into manhood whenever someone challenged me, whenever someone gave me like courage, whenever I thought that I couldn't do it. I learned how to lead whenever a man gave me an opportunity to lead. Like not because they did it for me, not because they removed the obstacles, because initiation is a process. It's a journey. Like we've got to remember that Jesus didn't start his ministry till he was 30, like 30 years old. Why? Well, because it takes a while to figure, the, like it takes a while to figure these things out. Like if it took Jesus 30 years to kind of become a leader, then like, how much longer is it going to take us, especially if we don't have a father figure around? What was Jesus doing for those 30 years? Well, I believe he was being initiated. He was maturing. He was being equipped with what he needed to do to, to do the father's will. So like, be patient. Like, this is going to take time. It'll take years. Like, becoming a mature man of God, it's not a fast process. It takes lesson after lesson. It takes patience and persistence. And if you try to rush the process, then you're going to mess everything up because God's timing is perfect. Something about this question made me think about Jesus and the difference between how he was a teacher and these other rabbis around around the hood in Galilee. How how it worked in the synagogue was that if you were a student of the law, you sought out a rabbi to to follow after. Like you went to them. You said, I want you to teach me how to live. I want to walk in the dust of your feet, all this stuff. Jesus shows up, and the main thing Jesus says is, come follow me. He's giving an invitation to guys to come follow him. It's not the disciples seeking after him initially. It's him seeking after them. And I think when it comes to this question of who's going to show me how to be a man, the idea of a mentor is we're the one giving the invitation. These boys in our organization, I don't think any of them of their own accord said, hey, Forerunner, I really want a mentor. Can you get me a mentor? It was probably their mom that initiated and tried to make that connection with us. Yeah. And I, I think really that's, 
that's something that's beautiful about the heart of Jesus in mentoring is that we are the ones that give the invitation. We're the ones that bring the relationship, that that's our responsibility is to step into that space and answer the question that they're asking internally that no one else is answering because we don't hear their voice. Sometimes we make light of the fact that like our boys, the only professions that they know is like professional, professional athlete. Well, why is that? If you really think about that, like it's a pretty deep, like deep question. Like, why is that all of our boys answers? Like, I want to be in the NBA. I want to be a professional football player. And the answer is it's sad. It's because they're the only people, they're the only male adults who have invited them into anything. And like, yeah, it's not like LeBron's being like, hey, come and be an NBA player. But but really, he is because he sees him every night. He sees him on SportsCenter. He sees him on commercials. Our boys idolize that. If you go into two different schools, a school that is filled with kids who come from two-parent households, whose dads are engaged, and then a school where, like, the kids, maybe they're a bunch of kids from hard places, and you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, it's totally different answers. The kids who have healthy families, like they have just been exposed to more. They know what an architect is. They know what it means to be a banker or to be in business, right? Why? Because there's someone there telling them, teaching them, exposing them. Mm-hmm. But for our kids who are kids from hard places, they don't have any men who are telling them these things. And if they do, perhaps they're not positive. The only men they have in their life are these sports stars. And so, of course, that's who they want to be. And on top of that, society is telling them, hey, if you want to get out, if you want to make it out of here, that's the ticket. If you watch any of these ESPN 30 for 30s or E60s, any documentaries on kids from hard places who have become professional athletes, like you hear the same thing over and over and over. They became that because it was their only way out. Mm-hmm. And that's sad. The third question people with a father wound ask internally is, how can I prove to myself and others that I'm a man? Yeah, and this goes back to what we talked about last episode with the false masculinity or the apathy, right? And so if it's apathy, they're just not going to try at all. They're saying to themselves, I know I don't have what it takes, so I'm just not even going to try. So we're going to focus in on this false masculinity. And there's this book, it's called Seasons of Life by Marx. Um, and they have this saying. Karl like, Marx? Uh, Jeffrey Marx. Okay, just making sure. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> the saying is this, from the ball field to the bedroom to the billfold. And basically what they say is that's how a boy proves that he's a man. Mm. First, it's the ball field, right? Like they have athletic ability. Somehow, if you can shoot a basketball, crush a baseball, catch a football, you're immediately elevated to just this level of, oh, he's a man, right? That's the ball field. And not only that, but the kids who can't do that, they get deflated and pushed to the side, right? Mm-hmm. It is the, I'm the last kid picked in kickball, right? Like, man, that's got to do a number on your self-worth. But if you can hit a baseball, if you can be, be an athlete, like you are elevated to just this, this new level. And that's the ball field. The second thing is the bedroom, right? And that's sexual conquest. That's like sex becomes something that validates manhood. Like Mm. I'm a man. If you know, like how many times have you heard boys say you're not a man until you have sex. And like, 
unfortunately that is pervasive across society. Like you're a man whenever you get laid. And because of that, like boys manipulate and like use girls as a tool to kind of get something that they want. But like the reward is like celebration. Like, Oh, okay. Like you had sex with her. Okay. You're a real man now. And so like from the ball field to the bedroom and then as they grow up, it's to the billfold. And like, I've seen this with people who are 30, 50, 70. They prove that they're a man based on how much money's in their bank account. This economic success, it depends on your title, your bank account, the things that you own. This concept of power in possessions tells us whether or not you're a real man. And like here in America, like so many of our kids are like, man, this guy's a real man because he has three cars or because he has a huge house. I can remember as a kid, like if a man had a two-story house, woo, I was like, man, this guy's loaded, right? (laughs) (laughs) But like, uh, unfortunately, like there's a lot of adults out there who like prove their worth based on their title, based on their bank account, based on cash. Unfortunately, that is this false masculinity. I am a man because I'm good at sports, get girls, have money. I think that's a pretty good generalization. In that, I didn't hear character. Oh, like yeah. my character shows that I'm I'm manly. Like it's all about trophies, status, well, accolades. And in fact, it's actually almost the opposite, right? Like boys think if you forgive, if you are honest, that's weak. That's weak. So how jacked up has Satan made society to where the bad things are celebrated and the good things are pushed down upon? Mm-hmm. Like I feel so bad for kids who are genuinely nice kids, because in elementary school, junior high and high school, they get just pushed around and harassed. The good guy is never celebrated in high school. But then like, as soon as you finish high school, it's like what wasn't cool in high school is now like the thing that actually makes you like super popular society. Actually, like people like it when people are nice. (laughs) Yes. But as a kid growing up in your most vulnerable time, that is looked down upon. The next question that stems from the father wound that we ask internally is where am I going to get my needs met? Yeah. And this kind of comes back to the, like, it's up to me, right? Like my dad was supposed to provide these things. He was supposed to cover me up, protect me, but like, because for one reason or another, they're not there. It's up to the kid to do it. And like, that's a pretty big burden for a, for a child of any age to carry. Sometimes like, they pull up their bootstraps and they do it. Like we've got kids in our program who are 12 who in the summertime, they take care of their three siblings who are all under the age of five. Right. But this also kind of creates a negative side effect, like anger or like no self-confidence because they just can't do it. Or like they're starving for attention, acceptance that they haven't gotten. Right. Like this is kind of the basis of the three A's. And so like ultimately the answer to where am I going to get my needs met? is it's up to me, right? And that is an orphan spirit if I've ever heard one. Like, no one's taking care of me. It's up to me. It's my job. Let's do it. Next question stemming from the father wound is, will everyone leave me like my dad did? I think that this one's hard because a kid is not going to be able to verbally process this question. If you're a mentor and a kid's not letting you in, if he's not giving you his trust, he's not going to be like, Hey, I just want you to know that I'm not letting you in and sharing my life because of my dad. I've got trust issues and I'm working through them, but just 
just be patient. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, a kid can't say that. But because they're so fearful of being left again that, like, they self-protect. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't let people in. Because they believe if, if I let them in, then they'll get to know me. If they get to know me, they'll find out the real me. And if they find out the real me, they'll leave me. And if they leave me, it'll hurt. So I'm not even going to start that process. And I won't start it because I won't let them in. And that's that self-protection, right? It isn't that they don't like you. It's that they're terrified. And the last person that they let in hurt them. It also creates this, this negative narrative, right? Like they for sure do not believe the best. Why? Because they were burned by the most important person in their life, right? If their dad didn't stick around, then why in the world would this stranger stick around? They believe that people will leave, which makes them self-protect, makes them open up, and they believe the worst. And this is what's so hard about that is the result of that is relationships with this kid are super difficult. And so it's almost like some kids that we mentor, they make life really hard on the person who's mentoring them just so the mentor can get frustrated, the mentor can leave, and they can say to themselves, see, I told you they'd leave. They left because I'm not lovable. There's like a short leash. They, they look for ways and they make it so hard so that they can say, see, I knew I couldn't trust them. And there's lack of grace. They hold grudges. They don't forgive. They're believing the worst. And it's almost like this self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, I'm not going to let them in because they're going to leave me. But then when they do let you in, they make it so hard that the chances of you leaving actually skyrocket. And then when you leave, they say, see, I knew it. Mm-hmm. Not doing that again. Yeah. It's kind of like the, a child's version of confirmation bias. Like if you have a question, you can ask your question in Google to like inform the answer that it's going to give you. Is coffee really good for you? Like if I put that question in Google search results, it's going to tell me, oh yeah, coffee's great for you. <laughs> like, and you're like, told you, look, coffee's great for you. But if you typed in Google search, is coffee bad for you? Like the answer is probably going to be, oh yeah, you got to watch out caffeine levels, super bad. Like, yeah. and I think, I think that's, that's something that you see in kids is that they have an answer that they believe is true about this mentor relationship. And they're going to do whatever they can to confirm the narrative or the, the understanding they have of relationships is that I can't trust you. And I'm going to show you why I can't, because this is going to happen. I, I have one more thought just about our tendency in culture is toward more surface level relationships Facebook, social media, it allows us to put forward a mask of who we are. We don't have to let people in. And that's, that's socially normative. Like everybody lives in that realm of like not taking risks because I don't know if I can trust you with who I, who I really am. I mean, that was a mantra I had in school. Like when I was in high school, I believed if anyone truly knew me, they could never love me. And so like thinking back, my closest friends in high school, I played basketball with them. We had this activity. The predominant part of our relationship was just doing something together and not talking about anything personal, or I would play video games. And it's literally like you're an avatar of a character living your life, connecting with people, mostly shooting people, but gives you this opportunity to just experience life with people without actually letting them into what you're going through personally. And, and I think that, yeah, I just think that the tendency for us to move toward surface level relationships is a reactionary 
spot of we have all of this stuff inside that we don't want people to see, we don't want people to experience, and we have a fear of if we let people in, they're going to leave, and so we won't let them in. And that right there is like, it's just this arrow saying the foundation of this orphan spirit is fear. Mm -hmm. Like, what's going to happen if? And I I remember, and I don't know if you'll want, want to take this out of the podcast, but there's this moment with my dad. I'm in my room. This is high school. I'm masturbating. He walks in on me. Most awkward moment ever. He opened the door. He saw me. He shut the door. He walked back downstairs. About 20 minutes later, I walked downstairs to talk to him about it because I was just like, this is so awkward. And he did not want to talk about it. He was just like, let's just close the book. We don't have to address it. And I cannot get that moment out of my head of how that affected me because what that signaled to me was that in a situation where my dad saw what I was doing behind closed doors, that even when I tried to have a conversation about it, we couldn't talk about it. My response was, well, if I can't talk about it with him and he knows about it, obviously we can't talk about difficult things and we should just close the book on anything that's not putting forward our best, our best foot forward or anything that's difficult. And I mean, in my relationship with him, it was always being a man is figuring it out on your own. Our experiences of talking about difficult things change the way we approach those conversations. And so if we have a negative experience talking about tough things, we're more likely to never talk about them and just suppress it all. Well, and let me ask you a question. First off, thank you for being honest there. But I wrote a, I wrote a poem about that, a slam poem, <laughs> and I shared it in church, and it was, uh, it was the most awkward thing ever. <laughs> I don't doubt that. How, how did that moment, that lie that you believed, right? Tell me just a couple other ways. You don't have to go into a ton of detail. How has that impacted you in areas of your life that you thought that it would never even touch? Yeah, I mean, that situation, just like your your biggest fear ever when you're into pornography and masturbation is like, someone's going to see this. Yeah. And ultimately, I want to say it was kind of freeing, like that I was found out and like someone someone saw it. But the fact that I couldn't talk about it after the fact I think that, that that really messed me up and led me to just further insulate and isolate myself and not let people in. And so, I, I mean, and to be honest, I wasn't in the church at this time. I never thought that it was, it was healthy to share sin or whatever. Like, it was, it was more of like, I need to shut this down never talk about it, hide it even more. And when I got into college and I met Jesus, I recognized that confession of sin was for your healing and for your freedom. And so it was like that conversation I wanted to have with my dad could have led to a lot of freedom for me where he could have been like, hey, you know what, son? It's okay. Like, like, hey, let's talk about this. And I just remember in, in college when I started actually sharing sin with people around me, 
my biggest fear was that people were going to reject me. But ultimately what it led to was like, I received grace, love and mercy and freedom by like bringing those things into the light and asking questions of like, do you guys do this? Does, is this something that affects your relationships? Like, what are you, what are you hiding? And, and so I don't know if that answers your question, but I definitely think that that situation spoke to me that I just need to further isolate Mm -hmm. and protect myself from being found out. And that it wasn't, wasn't necessarily doing something wrong. It was that I didn't lock the door. I didn't do it more secretly and, and keep people out of this place in your life. So it's like, rather than addressing everything that's in the closet, it's just like, how can I close more doors and keep myself free from other people knowing about it? So sorry, I watched porn when I was in high school. (laughs) I didn't, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, that sucks. So. All right. Take us to that last question, Steven. Last question. Well, there's, there's a lot of questions that we probably haven't addressed, but this is the last one we have. Yeah. Uh, is who is going to take care of me and my family? Yeah. So like, this is, um, this is a big question and really depending on how you're wired, like there is an enormous weight on some of our kids to believe that they really are the man of the house when they're 10 and that like, it's their job to take care of their family, of their mom. And that's just a huge weight to carry for any person, much less a kid, much less a kid who comes from a hard place. And it really like, it kind of points to a bigger issue. Like I hear mentors sometimes say, well, why don't they just study? Or why don't they just go to college? Like, why can't they just do that? And this kind of answers that like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like the very bottom tier of that pyramid is food, warmth, water, rest. And it's like, huh, my family needs food and I have to take care of my siblings or do I need to study for algebra two? (laughs) Right. Our kids aren't like doing their homework because they're working two jobs so they can put food on the table for their family. Just like it kind of comes back to that, that fear, like, okay, no one's going to take care of me. No one's going to take care of my family. So I have to at the detriment of my future, who is going to keep my family secure? Who is going to keep them safe? That's why there's kids who have guns. I've got to take care of this because if I don't, then no one will. And my family might get hurt or just that like belongingness and like love needs. Like I can remember whenever I was in high school, if it was a question of, am I going to study for a test tomorrow or go hang out with my friends? I chose my friends hundred percent of the time. Like wasn't even a question to me. Why is that? Because the need for belonging, the need for love is so much greater than like my need to like have a good future. I know that the media loves to spotlight the kid who comes from like this terrible situation and now they're a doctor. Don't, don't get me wrong. That's awesome. But like that kid was like one in a million, like for every kid who was in that exact same spot, like they probably didn't become a doctor, but they're environment kind of swallowed them up. And why is that? Well, because like they were focused on their needs, like physiological needs, safety needs, belongingness. And more than that, like feeling accomplished, like having self-esteem, like I'm going to get my worth met in sports more than like academics. Why? Because in sports, I can prove that I can accomplish things, right? I 
used to be a football coach and there were so many kids who were kids from hard places who cared so much more about sports than academics, even though they logically knew that academics was going to provide for them a better future. But they wanted to do sports because in sports they excelled and that made them feel good. Very few players play football after high school. Very few. And yet there's so many high school kids who in football season, they're spending 50 hours a week in football. Yeah, it's everything. <laughs> like it is their God. And then, but they're not spending that time on academics, even though academics will put food on their table. Why is that? Well, because like who is going to take care of their family? Who's going to take care of me? Well, for someone to take care of me, they're going to make me feel good and sports makes me feel good. So that's why I'm doing it. Um, at the very top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is that fulfilling one's potential. But like you can only obtain that whenever physiological, safety, belongingness, esteem, all those are met. And those are met so often through family. There is an answer to this issue, and the answer is family. And it is not good for man to be alone. But Satan knows that, and that's why he wants to kill family. That who is going to take care of me and my family? Well, it is up to them. And that's a real huge weight for a kid to carry. And I think, I think that's, that's probably the most difficult part about all of these questions is that for someone with a father wound, they see themselves as the answer to every one of these questions. Which that is the root of an orphan spirit, that it's, it's on me. And like that weight can crush someone, no matter how strong you are. But the Lord says, hey, give me that weight. <laughs> like mm -hmm. the, the Lord says, trust me. Come underneath my covering. Come into my family and trust that I'll take care of you. But for some of our kids, like they live that way for the first 20 years of their life. It's a pretty big transition from orphan to son, right? Actual orphans, kids who are adopted, right? Like if you take a kid who's been in the foster care system for 15 years and place them in a perfect home, they're still going to have some issues mm -hmm. because for the last 15 years, their mind has been trained to think a certain way. And if you hear these stories, like there are stories of foster kids, of kids who are adopted into a safe home where, I mean, the pantry's stocked. Like, there's a ton of food. They don't have to worry about it. But they're hoarding food underneath their bed out of fear of not having because for so long they have feared not having. And, like, that is crazy. That breaks my heart. That just goes to show you that, like, this I have to take care of myself mindset can just absolutely destroy someone. Yeah. And it's not how we were supposed to live. Mm-hmm. It is not good for man to be alone. In the book I'm reading currently, uh, he's unpacking that Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Which I love that passage. And he, he says, isn't it interesting that Jesus gives this invitation to rest, and then he uses this picture of working a field, <laughs> take my yoke upon you. He's like, shouldn't he just kept with that theme of rest and like gone with that? But then Jesus just says, no, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He kind of unpacks that really just in like what you said, everyone has a father wound. Everyone has a weight to carry. Everyone has a burden. And Jesus doesn't just come and alleviate a burden. He takes it upon himself and he shows us how to carry it. And that finding true rest is not just the alleviation of suffering, of a burden, of the father wound but actually healing is found in walking with Jesus 
through that process and taking on his lifestyle and his burden is light. His yoke is easy. It's not, it's not just removing it, but walking with him in it. And I think that that's, that's comforting to me because I think the Christian life, we just feel like Jesus is just going to take all this stuff from us and he's going to solve it. And, and I don't want to minimize all of the freedom and liberty and healing and peace and rest that Jesus does bring. But ultimately, in this life, we do have trouble. But he's overcome, and he wants to walk us through it. And he wants to walk with every single person with a father wound that's asking these questions and to show them that he's the answer and to take his yoke. These are the questions that might stem from the father wound. I hope that you guys enjoy hearing these and uh, that you can maybe see if your mentee is somehow in some way asking these questions. Uh, my encouragement to you as a mentor is, hey, speak truth into the heart of the kid that you're mentoring. Be bold, be courageous, say the hard things. Say, hey, I believe in you. I love you. I'm here because you matter, because you have worth. If you want to contact us, you can via email. You can find our email in the show notes. Be sure to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, um, all of that good stuff. And tell your friends, if you know any mentoring org in your city who could use this podcast or who could benefit in being in relationship with us, please let us know. Our vision is to really engage every mentoring org in the name of Jesus in the nation so that we can learn how to better mentor kids from hard places. And if you heard one thing from this episode, let it be this, you can mentor.